This is always the hard part, trying not to make this sound like pretentious. Like, we're back! I always do, my girlfriend says I do a uh, radio guy voice, but welcome back to uh, Meet the Creatives. I am here with Leland Meshmeyer. Is that right? Or was I close mm-hmm. on it? Beautiful. Uh, Leland is the uh, co founder of, of Collins. Uh, your career began in brand strategy and evolved into design. When did you first know that you wanted to be a designer? Uh, actually, my career began in, in design. I was actually really a freelance designer, right. uh, but I, it was mainly in the space of graphic design and service design, or at least an early interpretation of uh, service design going all the way back to like 2002, 2003. But uh, I, I just had a big fascination for lots of other aspects that design kind of touched but wasn't exactly the same as. So one was brand strategy. Obviously, I was working with a lot of companies in building their company. I was very much fascinated by the strategy side of it. So I actually took a job for, I don't know, I think three years or so working in brand strategy on the advertising side uh, to you know, learn to develop those skill sets and to to complement what I always thought was great about design. Um, but I ultimately came back to design not because I didn't like brand strategy, but because I started learning more about what design was. Um, I'd always had a conception of design being lowercase d design. Really, it's design defined by its material or its output, right? So graphic design, fashion design, book design, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and my interests were always much bigger than just the material. I was very much interested in systems. I was very much interested in business models and cultural and anthropology and biology and all these different types of things. And so my stri- my period where I strayed away from the practice of design was really just me following my curiosity rather than setting out a career path for myself. And as I was in brand uh, brand strategy, I was still continuing to learn and teach myself a lot of stuff. And I was reading a lot of stuff by like John Thackera, a lot of um, uh, more what you would call design theory books. And I really began to understand what design with a capital D meant, right? It's much different than design with a lowercase d. And that's when I realized that I was a designer in the sense of the capital D. I was really interested in the theory of it. I was really interested in the structure of it, the criticism of it. I was still fascinated by the making of it and the material and the aesthetics and the formal qualities. Absolutely, that's still a part of it. But that's not where my passion lied as it relates to design. And the interesting thing about capital D design is that it is a integrative discipline. It allows, because design happens everywhere in the world, right? Design is ultimately intentional change. That's the best definition I've ever heard of what design is. It's really about... I've never heard that before. That's awesome. It's really about creating positive, desirable change in all aspects of the human condition. So design concerns itself with literally everything that's part of the human condition. So when I started to understand that, it started to make sense why I was initially fascinated by the formal and aesthetic qualities, the visual qualities of design, but then started moving into all these other areas and wanting them somehow to all work together into a singular practice, but never really knew what that practice was until I learned it was actually designed with a capital D. So now uh, I actually, a a, a daily part of what I do is uh, integrating systems dynamics that I taught myself, cyber dynamics, 
um, early on uh, computational theory and abstract thinking, um, literature, philosophy, uh, even to some extent biology and economic models and business models, all this stuff that isn't necessarily obviously part of the design practitioner's vocabulary or knowledge set, when you think about design in a bigger context, it all starts working together. And so that was the career path that I wanted to be a part of, practicing design as a integrative, uh, multidisciplinary designer taking on lots of different projects, both in terms of type and scale. That's really cool. And, and I've, I've found um, from everybody that I've kind of researched and all the people that are my mentors, a lot of them, uh, it wouldn't be a Meet the Creatives podcast without me mentioning Michael Beirut. Uh, mm -hmm. But he kind of went on to talk about um, how he kind of used design, and he's very similar in that regard, and you know, very studious and uh, very involved in the world of academia. And uh, he kind of talked about how design being a vessel to kind of go and explore, kind of delve deep into all these different subjects and stuff like that. So um, that's something that I hear again and again, and uh, I concur. I think that's really kind of neat, and that's where, where I'd like to go. But I, I think it, you know, where I'm at in the game, I'm just trying to get a grasp on, on design, but uh, the further exploration of all those things um, is really interesting, and I've been doing a lot of reading lately, which kind of coincides with the, like, what you were talking about, and uh, all the grades, you know, say similar to what you just said, so that's, that's good to hear. Um, you are the co-founder, along with Brian Collins, uh, who has the best Twitter account on the web, uh, of the brand consultancy Collins. Um, how did you, how did Collins evolve from a design studio into a full service brand consultancy? Uh, it's a good question. So Brian and I founded the company in 2008. Well, really 2007, um, but I moved up to New York on January 1st, 2008, uh, to start officially working. The, the thing that we wanted to do was we weren't sure how to articulate at the very beginning. We knew design should be a bigger part of the business process. We knew design had a bigger role to play. We knew design had been um, marginalized by ad agencies who saw it as fixing a layout, handling production, really something that's in service of the campaign right. rather than something that leads all work. But we didn't know how to talk about that. We didn't know a pithy way to... To, to pen that down. And it was also at a time when a lot of the industry was in turmoil. Um, digital agencies and digital practices and digital means of connecting with consumer communities had really penetrated the way businesses had practiced their work and was now starting to break up the traditional models and the traditional methodologies. And the old ways of using mass media were starting to show their inefficiencies and their ineffectiveness. And so everyone was sort of in this phase, whether you were in design or not, of like, holy shit, the sky's falling. What do we do? What do we do? Right. And in that moment, it's a liminal moment, right? You're sort of moving from the old world and the, the new world is just starting to show itself. But because it's still dark and unclear and there's not enough light yet, you kind of don't know what you're standing in front of. You don't know where the path is that's opening up in front of you. Right. So for many years, you had to, not just our company, but lots of companies had to live in this murky space of, we know the old way isn't working, but we're not totally clear what the future is, so we're just going to live in ambiguity for a while. And that's what it was. So we had to pin ourselves to something tangible um, with uh, 
with the nature of our work. So we just said we are a design company and like many other companies at the time, we articulated the outputs of what we did. We said you can come to us for identity systems, you can come to us for packaging, you can come to us for retail environments and so on. The, um, and that served us well in the beginning because it gave people a very specific sense of how to use it, use this in their budgets. Um, but what we found ourselves doing a lot more by the nature of my background and Brian's background as well is what some of people have later called brand therapy, meaning it's not just about how do you create beautiful objects or beautiful solutions for companies, but how do you then ladder that up to a larger conversation about why that company should exist, what does it value, what motivates it, what drives it, what's its culture like. And that coincided at a time where we were starting to build our team. We were starting to have uh, more talent, more diversity of talent. We could take on different types of work than we could when it was just Brian and I. And so we said, you know what? We need to change from being just a design firm handling design projects to being a company that's more reflective of what we're doing, both with C-suite leaders and in the variety of work that we can do. So we said, we need to move to being a brand consultancy. And what brand allowed us to do was, in the language of uh, uh, client leaders, was it allowed us to touch lots of different parts of the business that if we had just that if we had continued to call ourselves a design firm we wouldn't have been able to touch. So, for example, one thing is uh, culture. Like, how do you align a culture of a company to what the brand ambition is? How do we get into uh, um, go-to-market strategies? How do we get into communication strategies? How do we get into innovation strategies and innovation design with those companies? That stuff is much more strategic. And when you just talk about just pure design, most clients think, oh, well, they're the people who, ha who do work at the end of the value chain. After all the hard and big decisions have been made, designers come in and make it a little prettier. And we didn't want to be stuck in that. So brand consultancy was a way for us to play at a higher level, have, have those higher level strategic conversations, and also do more and bigger types of work with our client and ultimately grow as a company. Right. And uh, one of the things I like most about Collins um, is, is that it kind of seems like, like uh, you guys more than a lot of the agencies that I, I look at and uh, you know applying for jobs at this point in my career now graduating from school and I'm looking at a lot of agencies that one of the things that's that I like the most about Collins is that you guys um, there's so many different mediums and ways in which you know every brand you guys have you know for example the type directors club you guys had an interactive experience I um, you know the work you did with Hershey's it was it was a physical store which I remember uh, you know the first time I saw it, I couldn't believe I didn't even know what branding was at that time but, you know, so many, a variety of different projects. Um, how big is, is the team there and how is it that you guys are so diverse in the, the ways in which you go about doing each client? You know, Spotify, all these, they're very different in, in terms of the mediums that are used. Um, you know, there, there's not really a, a style that each, each one is kind of its own thing. Um, so how big is the team there and, and how, how do you go about... Um, you know, when a client comes in, how do you assess what, what route, you know, what medium is, is best for that client? Yeah. So we're, we have two offices in New York and San Francisco, and collectively we have a little over 40 people okay. uh, working at Collins right now. There's a, there's a couple reasons why there's a diversity of work. Um, one is that we've, it, it has to do with the people we've hired. 
So we actually don't hire for cultural fit. We hire for cultural contribution. We purposely hire people that are different than who we are and provide something different than what we have right now, which means like no more than like two people have the same <laughs> competencies, skills, or background in what we do. And that allows us to not have one aesthetic style that we apply to every situation. It allows us to come up with ideas that are uh, divergent and different on every single project. The other thing that we do is, and, and, and this is also part in line with uh, the diversity of aesthetic talent and, and um, solutions, is that Brian and I don't have an aesthetic preference, meaning we have, we have um, things that we tend to really like personally, but at the end of the day, what we really like is an elegant, is a smart solution elegantly made. And it's our responsibility as leaders to uh, put our teams in a position to come up with those solutions. And then Brian and I listen to what they believe the solution is and what their ambition is and what they personally get excited about. And then Brian and I work with them to help them realize their ambition. Mm -hmm. They don't carry out our ideas. We help carry out their ideas. And at the end of the day, because you have a diversity of people working on different projects, each with their own, each focusing on what they're most passionate about in terms of a solution being, you just naturally end up with a lot of different types of solutions. The other thing that we do is we also randomly mix in talents that might not be obvious uses on projects. So a really good example is the Spotify work. So Spotify started out as a brand relaunch assignment. It was classic brand strategy, classic identity design, systems development. Um, but we wanted to turn it into something more. And given that it was a brand who wanted to live in the music space, it couldn't be a brand that was, um, uh, what's the right word, conservative. It needed a brand that that could be playful and surprising and, and, and experimental in what it did, just like, just like music is. Mm -hmm. So we actually folded in our experience design team into the identity development process. And we were, while our graphic designers were exploring solutions through the medium of graphics, our experiential design team was exploring solutions through the medium of code. So they were actually creating uh, brand identities with code not graphics. And what came out of that, and, and the two ended up informing each other a lot. Right. Um, we actually created a lot of different uh, software along the way and algorithms that created animated um, identity systems. Uh, but what ultimately came out of that was when the two teams fused together around an idea that they were both excited about, the, uh, the graphic designers were able to land the work as an identity system, but then the experience design team was able to say, hey, we can build in-house software that we can then sell to Spotify that allows their in-house team to execute this brand identity system faster, more on brand, and at a higher quality. Right. And it was something that could be rolled out globally, and it was something that could help the production process so that a lot of the communications that Spotify did, which were sort of block and tackle communications like promos or um, right. uh, coupons and things like that that you would send out via email, could now be quickly done with this software so that the internal design teams could actually focus on more of the creative opportunities in expressing the brand. And that way it allowed a, lo um, 
uh, rebalancing the load of work internally, which ultimately would make sure that Spotify could go to market with the system that we created much more expertly and capably than we would than they would have uh, had they not had that that piece of software that we developed. Mm -hmm. So that's that's what we like to do diversity of people, focus on what people get passionate about, and then make sure we always have mixed uh, competency teams working on every project. Right. And I'm happy that you brought up Spotify. That's uh, probably um, picking out a favorite client of yours is like picking a favorite child. I kind of like them all. They were all really good. Um, but Spotify in particular really uh, resonated with me because I, I realized it because, um, you know, I work in branding. And one of the things that you realize is when a, a brand kind of doesn't have um, continuity and then all of a sudden you kind of see it. Uh, and, and it really felt like Spotify had had a brand. Um, and I uh, have been vigilantly trying to get a job with the uh, Spotify design team because I, I love what they do. I've, I've added all of them on LinkedIn. So we'll see how that goes. I probably won't get it, but whatever. But um, one of the things that, that I, I realized about them is that uh, in, in the structure of their company is that, that they – it's it's UX and, it, and it's creative, but they're they're kind of it's it, it was actually hard for me to decipher when I was contacting people, um, you know who does what and and design and and UX are really integrated there to to the point that it was almost hard to you know who do I send my resume to kind of a thing. So um, their their design team does really great work, and uh, you know that software you guys created, I, I got a chance to see that on a uh, a talk that um, Brian had had did, and that's really neat. Um, and so, so you guys, how did you come up with the idea to kind of have that, that, that color scheme? And I know you guys had like a custom uh, typeface for that. Um, just, you know, in regard to Spotify, how did you, was that, was, because it was UX centric and then, and then creative, is, is that what caused that design? Is that what, why? No, actually, so one of our philosophies at Collins is, is that, um, you shouldn't necessarily market to consumers. You should contribute to their communities, right? Because right? people live in communities. They don't. They're not these isolated be beings waiting to be marketed to. Um, and so, what Spotify ultimately needed to do was they needed to grow globally, and the growth in the U.S. was the single most important thing that they could do. If they could scale as fast as possible and get as as the largest. Um, uh, customer base as possible in the U.S., then that was sort of the first pillar in sort of global domination and becoming uh, the clear leader in, in music streaming. Right. To do that, though, they had to recognize that they needed to stop thinking of themselves as a technology company. Because when we engaged them, they thought, we're a technology company who streams music. We said, you got to stop thinking that way. Because as you present yourself, what you've done is you've taken the look and feel of the UI and you've applied it to your external communications. Now their strategy was correct in that it is about consistency. Like we always want people to feel that this is the Spotify brand, but, or that this is a Spotify, part of the Spotify experience, even if it's just an ad. The problem though is, is that the UI was designed to allow the content, the album covers to pop. Right? So that's why you have the black to recess and all the colors set well off of it. Mm -hmm. When you extend that strategy into communications, it doesn't hold up. Everything looks dark and depressed and sad. And, and the photography that they were using was slice-of-life photography. They wanted to hold a mirror up to uh, the, the youth community that they were trying to appeal to and say, hey, 
this is you. We understand you. We know the life you live and how, you know, how you enjoy music and each other. The problem is, is that that photography looked like any photography you would find on Facebook or Instagram. And so what you have is, at the end of the day, an expression of the brand outside of the uh, app, the platform, that is completely unidentifiable as, uh, and, uh, as a Spotify communication and is... Um, is unbranded. If you, especially if you put your your hand over the logo and you asked anyone who who made this communication, right. it, it, it was it was completely hard to tell. It looks like it was I don't know somebody ripped it off of Instagram or something, right. a picture off of Instagram. So we said to them, "You guys don't have a clear point of view. You guys by by taking the uh, design of your technology product and putting it on." in all your brand communications, you look like a technology company. Right. But, what the, but what the listener community, the music fans, the uh, musicians themselves, they're not looking for a technology company. They're looking for a company to uh, contribute to the culture of music. They are looking for someone who uh, understands music intuitively and looks like they are part of music culture. If you do that and you really take in the idea that you guys are a music company, first and foremost, that uses technology to heighten, to amplify, to personalize the music experience, then you'll start behaving as a company that is contributing something powerful and important to the music community. So there was a lot of other strategy that happened after that basic twist of perspective. But on the color question specifically, we said, given that that's what you need to do, we held up a slide that says, this is what you look like, dark, sullen, unidentifiable slice of life photos. And then we held up another slide and said, this is what music looks like. And we showed all these posters and album covers and artwork. Right. And it was colorful. It was vivid. It had no consistency in expression. It was experimental. It was raw. It was expressive. It was, all, it was every sort of visual cue you could imagine. I was like, this is what music looks like, but this is what you look like. Right. There's a huge disconnect when a very visual culture, uh, such as millennial culture, really any generation living today, right. looks at your work. It says, these guys don't get music, so I'm not going to sign up for them. So we said, how do we take the vibrancy and the diversity of music and inject it into your brand? And one of the very first things we said that you need to do was you need to diversify from your three colors, white, black, and green, and create a much richer color palette to play with. And we chose specifically the color palette to be more vibrant, to be more youthful feeling, so that anytime you created a combination of any of those colors, uh, it would look fantastic. And Ben Crick, our design lead who was working on this with me, did an amazing job with Christian Widlick, a designer on our team, to really uh, uh, calibrate those colors, uh, actually with another person, Gabe Benzer. Yeah. who's our director of systems design, to really calibrate those colors um, to be perfect for them. And I think they did a fantastic job. Yeah, they, they certainly did. And, and one of the things that I like about it, I was looking at it the other day. I'm a huge fan of Spotify, just the, the product itself. And I was with them from the very beginning, pretty much. Um, and one of the things that I like about the new design is that you have these kind of um, vibrant album covers, which are very, like you said, very colorful and um, you know, they, they have a lot of, um, evoke a lot of emotion and they're, they're exciting. And then, you know, it, it, there used to be this kind of weird juxtaposition where it was like that, and then it was like kind of dark and mundane, but, but now they kind of play well together, and, um, you know, across the entire app, it's very colorful, and, and, it's, and it's, you know, fun, and uh, do you think, too, you know, because 
I think that branding has kind of taken a turn in, in recent years, and tell me if I'm wrong, because you're more of an expert on this than I am, but it, it seems like the, the old school way of thinking of, you know, well, we'll, we'll just spray these people with, with you know, uh, with, with branding, and we'll, we'll get our message across, and, and the, you know, the, the color will be just the same, uh, and it seems more and more um, brands are kind of going with, with a fluid brand that kind of, uh, I, don't, I don't know if that's the right term, but these kind of brands that can that can evolve and become different things, and it's the continuity is still there, but it's not so rigid. But but mm-hmm. there are these kind of identity systems now where they're um, they can kind of take on different shapes and forms, but you can still, like you said, you can still recognize um, you know that that at Spotify, if you cover up the brand, you can still know based on certain you know visual attributes, you can still kind of. See that is that uh, is that the case, or is that just certain brands are doing that, and, and and why is that phenomenon happening in the design world? Yeah, I think um, it's definitely happening. Uh, is it right for every brand, every company? No, not necessarily. But the reason it's happening is because the channels and the ways brands express themselves in the world is it, it changes on a daily basis and it multiplies every month. So you can't design a rigid system. You have to design a fluid system that can fit, can fit into any form, media format at any scale to carry any message, to be animated, to be interactive, to be flat, to be printed, to be on screen, to be scaled up big, to be scaled small. Like as a designer, you cannot design a rigid system that works in every scenario. So what you have to do is you actually have to design a very simple system uh, with simple rules and simple amounts of elements that can be expressed in a fluid, dynamic, um, polyphonous kind of way. Right. Uh, it, it, it's just the very nature of how brands go to market with and brands, brand identity uh, theory and, and um, standards are, are evolving with that. Yeah, that's very cool. Uh, do you feel that when you design a system like Spotify or, or some of these other um, systems you guys have created where there's so much room for play? Um, I've had in my experience, you know, uh, just by freelancing, sometimes I'll create an identity system for a company and, and, and they'll, they'll use it and they'll kind of follow the guidelines and, and, and uh, it, it's rewarding to see. Um, but, when, but when you kind of push it off into the sunset and just let their design team handle it, um, do you find that oftentimes that they kind of stick to that and then evolved in something better or, or does sometimes it kind of gets lost? Because I, I've had times where, where um, I'll make a logo for somebody or, or an identity system and they'll use it in a way which is great and it really, you know, kind of evolves into something more. And then other times it kind of gets diluted, e- even though there are, are not, not strict brand guidelines, but they're, you know, the, you know, the, the resolution's not the same or kind of... And in, in your experience, when you guys you know shake hands and move on to the next client, what usually tends to happen? Uh, it's actually a really good question because uh, I think it's an ongoing challenge um, to make sure that the onboarding work is not just a handoff, mm-hmm. but it's actually an ongoing relationship. So, you know, I, it, it, to say that every one of ours has rolled out perfectly, I think, would be uh, incorrect. Um, but the majority have. And it's because we are so focused on not only delivering a great product, but we, you know, we want to see our work out in the world be the best it can be. So really early on in the history of Collins, we would always uh, phase in a consulting period. 
after we uh, uh, delivered the brand guidelines. And a consulting period consists of a lot of different things. One is it, it can be just a simple roadshow where we go through the organization and explain it and, and the rationale why behind stuff and how the system works. The other thing it can be is actually where we creative direct internal teams uh, over a period of time to help them understand what works, what doesn't. Another part can be that, you know what, we can't, it, designing, designing an identity system is in many ways like designing a, an app or a website. You can't, you can't predict all the bugs in the system until people start using it. So sometimes we'll say, you know what, you guys go use it for four weeks and keep track of all the bugs in the system and come back to us and then we'll re-engineer pieces of it to work better for you long term. And so that iterative approach is also a really good way of onboarding the company as well. Um, so all of that's really important. But the other thing is, you know, I've seen s guidelines from other places that are, they sort of sit at two extremes. They're either like super, super simple, where they're essentially just style guides. Like, hey, here's a general direction for photography. Here's the typeface you should use, the logo and a color palette. Good luck. And then on the other side, you have these super heavily engineered documents, um, which tells you how to kern every V and every A at every point size and every medium with every, every typeface. I mean, it's just, <clears throat> and they're like this thick printed. Right. Which um, no one's going to read. <laughs> yeah, double-sided. And so no one reads it. And so then that's when the brand goes off the rails. So we've, uh, we really pride ourselves on trying to create systems, kind of like what I said before with the Spotify thing, where you have a very small set of graphic elements mm -hmm. and you have very simple rules that are easy to remember and then go. Right. And so what that means is, is that you have to balance control with um, what's the word I'm thinking of? Uh, uh, I don't know. Lack of control. Right. Like how much control you give over. And, and so find, calibrating what that right balance is for every organization is, is different. It's not just the same thing. We struck it really well with Spotify. We struck it really well with Optimum. Uh, we struck it really well with some brands. Other brands, uh, we haven't struck it so well, but through that consulting process that I mentioned earlier, we're actually able to calibrate that balance much better. That's so cool. This has been an awesome podcast so far. I'm learning so much. Um, <laughs> these are more for me than anything else. Like, I put them online, yeah, sure. but for a lot of times, it's uh, and one of the reasons um, why I kind of wanted to change the format around a little bit is because I, I would kind of have these very like tailored questions and then and then that they would be like talking and I wouldn't be able to ask them. So uh, <laughs> I could already tell this is a much better format to be able to kind of ask these questions. But well, I'm have, also long winded, so I apologize. I, I know I love it. I love <laughs> it. It gives me time to think and then uh, get my act together. Some people are kind of brief and then you're like, um, um. yeah, but this is the lifeboat, though. We have we have information here. So we're going to keep going. It's good. Um, that's very cool. Um, so you've won virtually every major award in the creative field, and your work has been showcased in the Museum of Modern Art, um, among a laundry list of other places. Uh, how, how old are you, by the way? Uh, 35. You're 35, okay. Yeah. Uh, to what do you attribute... See, this is what happens. I try and make big <laughs> word questions, and it, just, it, it doesn't sound like me, but I like the way I worded this one. It says, to what do you attribute your success at such a young age? I would never say that in the real world, but that's my question. <laughs> um, I, God, I don't know. I, I look. Don't if say you rolling ask, up your sleeves. Don't say it. <laughs> no, I mean if you, if at luck. Yeah. 
luck. I mean, I. I That's refreshing to hear because nobody says that. I, I, I look. I don't think I'm smart enough or talented enough, and I always every every two years that goes by, I feel outdated and completely irrelevant. Um, and I, I I work really hard. I try hard. I, you know, all all that sort of cliche stuff. Um, but I know a lot of people who've worked really hard and haven't gotten anywhere. So I, I have no idea. And when I have no idea, I just attribute it to luck. Do you think part of it um, is because um, I'll go to sometimes I'll be talking to designers and stuff and they'll say that, that me being being sociable and being uh, extroverted, they say that, you know, in the, in the world of design that has a lot to do with it. But but I wouldn't. You know, if I had my own, if I was in your position and somebody came in and they were, you know, the life of the party and their work didn't, didn't add up to that. Do you think it's a mix? I mean, do you think part of it is, is being social and and being likable? Because part of it is on the one hand is your portfolio, but somebody once explained it to me, I think it was somebody at the creative group or something like that. But they said that uh, a lot of times if you get a, a call for an interview or something like that, you're, you got the call because your work merits you being there and then the interview is almost like um you know seeing whether or not you're somebody they want to go out to lunch with or seeing whether or not you can kind of get through the formalities and the politics of it all so for young designers out there and that's largely who the audience of the show is is do you think that uh you know what what makes somebody valuable in, in, in an agency or something like that yeah, it's a good question. I mean, so so there's sort of two parts to your question. The first is like how much does being extroverted and social factor into success? And then the second question is, um, sorry, what was that last sentence you said? Um, I was saying about how um, young designers I, I, and about how about how like the work and how this the social how it all kind of comes together. Yeah, I, I think there was something about like value. How do you be valuable? Oh yeah, yeah. How do, how do you have value? And that's something I talked yeah. about in my last podcast with Debbie Millman about. Yeah. Um, how do you prove your your worth to these companies? Kind of thing. Yeah. So, yeah. So those are the two questions: extrovertedness and then the value. So on the extrovertedness one, yeah, it absolutely matters. I mean, you can't be successful if no one knows about you or your work. Um, my challenge has always been <laughs> is that I'm academic and introverted, so yeah. it's it's actually uh, not not helped me. Um, but yeah, you know, getting out there and socializing your work and things like that are are hundred uh, percent a catalyst and a boost to your career. Now you have to be good and you have to back it up and you have to have substance. Right. Um, but lots of times, fame can be a replacement for mastery. Yeah, it's it's a temporary um, placement. It's like being drunk, right? Like, oh, you're famous. I assume you're good. And then as you work together, you realize fame doesn't necessarily equate to mastery. So you have to be able to back it up. So there's always that balance that you have to strike. And as you pursue fame, mastery can go down because you're not practicing. But as you dial up your mastery, your fame can go down because you're not out out there promoting yourself Mm -hmm. and and socializing your ideas. So again, it's just, it's a balance one constantly has to strike and, and be aware of. Um, on the value side, you know, any, I believe value is not what you can do, but what you make possible for others. So if you walk into an interview and you say, I can do this, I have these capabilities, I've had this experience, that's not as 
valuable or as impressive as walking into an interview and saying, I can help your company do this. I can make this possible for you. I can add this capability to what you guys do, which amplifies this aspect of your business. Um, that's what's really important because what that says is when you take that point of view, it says, I'm concerned about what we can do together right. as opposed to I'm concerned about what I do. What I can do for myself. Right? Yeah. yeah. And that's a really, really important distinction um, if you choose to be anything, uh, if you choose to work within a studio or an agency or a consultancy environment because you will work with lots and lots of different people. And given that design is boundless in its application and that design is integrative of lots of perspectives, lots of different talents, lots of different uh, disciplines, you have to be aware of how you complement and connect with those other disciplines. Right. And if you're not aware of that, you will find yourself um, frustrated by working with other people and they'll find your, them, themselves frustrated working with you because there's no connectivity, there's no, uh, there's no uh, sense of collaboration. So I think if you're able to do that and focus on that and really position yourself in that way, you can kind of get any job you want. Right, for sure. We, I, have, I just started last week, I started a, uh, a, a best of YouTube series on, on my YouTube page and I think that last uh, two minutes you said there that's going to be on the, the best of this week that was really great insight man that's good that's good um, yeah so in, in turn you, you mentioned about like working at a studio or working at an agency and one of the things that I've really been kind of wrestling with um, you know be it that I'm graduating in, a, in about 30 days or so or maybe even less than that now god that's scary to think about but uh, what do you recommend for somebody when you're kind of weighing your odds, you know, an agency, brand consultancy, and, and, you know, and there's also 15 different words for every, every kind of place that you can work at. Um, how, what do you re recommend for somebody like myself who is, uh, you know, I have a, a love for branding, first and foremost, I think branding, and uh, I kind of share that, that same sentiment about, um, you know, as, as a system. You know what I mean? That's one of the things that, that I love doing is kind of seeing how the whole system plays together, the overarching thing. Um, but, but, you know, you hear people talk about in-house and, and then um, agencies. And there are a lot of in-house studios, Spotify, for example, and other ones like that, that do extraordinary work. And I think that the days of, you know, having to work in an agency to have a, a, uh, a collaborative kind of experience, I think that those and, and also, two more fluid identity systems make in-house seem more tempting. But I don't know. I mean, what, how, do you, how did you decide that you wanted to work for an agency that deals with different clients as opposed to um, working in-house or something like that? Yeah. Well, on, this, on that specific question, for me, it was just variety. I like variety. I'm intellectually promiscuous, so I bounce around between like lots, lots of different... <laughs> Yeah. Lots of different problems, lots of different topics, lots of different uh, disciplines. I mean, I, I taught myself causal loop diagramming. Because I don't know I was, what that means. <laughs> it's, it's basically a way of understanding the dynamics within systems. Okay. Is, is the simplest way to describe it. So that when you look at a complex set of relationships, it doesn't look complex. It actually looks understandable, and you can understand how each of those relationships are influencing each other. It's where the term feedback loop comes okay. into play. Yeah, I've heard that. Anyway, um, so working in a service environment as opposed to an in-house environment gave me that variety. Now, that's not to say that in-house doesn't have variety. There's tons and tons of variety that happens, but it's always with the same client. Right. 
within in the agency setting, I get to bounce between industries. I get to uh, bounce between different personality types, different types of challenges because I'm bouncing between different industries, um, different norms to try to disrupt through the work that we do. So I really like that. It keeps the mind fresh and, and particularly in a uh, industry, and, I, and I'm going to use the term creative industry to include every form of creative services, not just design. Right. Understanding how to think fast, understanding how to be uh, competent and lots of, or fluent is a better word, fluent in lots of different disciplines, and being able to uh, adapt and learn how to deal with ambiguity and complexity is really important because that's where not only is service uh, businesses going, but it's also where companies are going. Companies are dealing with ambiguity and complexity all the time. And you have a better shot early on in your career of learning how to do that if you work in an agency environment. Because mm -hmm. you'll just be doing more work and more diversity of work than you would if you went in-house. Right. Now, I say all that if you have a choice. Yeah. If anyone is struggling, the most important thing is just to get in. Yeah, yeah. that's what I'm dealing with right now. Yeah, just to get in and find a mentor inside uh, the company, right, right. agency or company, whoever, and really stay close to them and make sure early on in your career that you're developing self-leadership and those base and um, ex baseline expertise and stuff. Right. So after your, probably your third year, probably, you sh that's when you should really be trying to develop new skills, new competencies, new knowledge, new capabilities. Um, either within the company that you're currently in or more likely in another company. Right, for sure. And, and that's kind of the, um, I, I almost didn't realize it, but I, I think, you know, looking back on, on, on starting this podcast, that sounds ridiculous to say because you only had like seven episodes or so. But um, I'll you know, start somewhere. Yeah, right, that's true. They've been, they've been ridiculously good guests. I cannot, I look at like my, my uh, website and I can't believe the, 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 some of the, the marquee names that I've had that have come on, yourself included. I mean, it's, it's freaking ridiculous. Because, but I used it as, uh, I wanted to use it as, as a way to kind of to get that, that basic sense of, of, of mentorship. Um, you know, being able to talk to people like you and Debbie Millman, Sean Adams, and um, you know, later this month, Michael Beirut. Um, you know, you, you guys are... are very much so, I guess you'd say, like, out of my league, so to, so to say. But the, you realize, though, that if you inquire with these people, and, and this, this podcast, I think, is a testament to that. If, if you show that you're doing work and you show that, that you know, you're w a willingness to learn, um, people a, 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 as big as the biggest names in the industry, like Michael, are, are, are willing to share um, their stories and share their insight. And uh, for me, it was a no-brainer to, to, to kind of use this as a, as a vessel to, to meet people like yourself and, and to, you know, get, get a, a solid foundation um, in, in design and, you know, where to go. And I've gotten so much advice that you could never get from, from you know, reading like some, some lofty LinkedIn link about, you know, six ways to improve your resume. I mean, at the end of the day, that stuff's really just bullshit. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, it's, it's totally true. It, it, one should look at their career not as a professional career, but as a uh, continuing education. Right. Um, and I think when you look at it that way, you're gonna someone would make different decisions on where they'll work. Right. If you look at your career as a professional career, you want to go work for the most prestigious designer, making the most money possible, working on the biggest clients. But sometimes, doing 
working at a, a less prestigious company on less prestigious accounts um, might be better. Or maybe not even working in design formally might right. be better. Uh, we have a member of our team who you know, did everything from washing dishes for a time to being a photographer to working in magazine publishing to being an event coordinator. And he's, he's one of our creative directors and he's fantastic. He's such a good designer because he never pays attention to design. And, and yeah. you know, to say that design is, is a bad thing, I mean, absolutely, I redesign all the time. And I think having a healthy understanding of the industry, its history, its practitioners, its masters, the canon of design is absolutely critically important. But if that's the only thing you're focused on, I think you hurt your potential to become a great designer, that you'll only become a good designer. You have to really expand your practice, your knowledge, your skill set beyond that of the specific style of design or discipline of design that you do. That's when you become a great designer because that's when you're able to ask bigger questions. Right. That's when you're able to take on bigger challenges and solve more complex problems. And that's when you get to do really cool shit as a yeah. designer. Yeah, you guys are doing really cool shit for sure. Um, probably about 10 more minutes or so here and then we're gonna well, wrap this up. Just a, I have a couple of questions here I wanted to get to before we conclude. Um, you uh, published New Thinking on the emerging field of uh, mass collaboration and you guys did a really kind of a cool uh, conference. I actually found the link on uh, Vimeo and watched the, the whole thing about, uh, it, was, it was the gel conference. It was a, um, a Collins experience, as you guys called it. Can you tell me a little bit about that and how you guys kind of came up with that? Yeah, sure. So um, I've been fascinated. This, so this is part of how not paying attention to design for a certain percentage of your life actually pays off in design later on. Right. So I've always been fascinated by systems. It's manifested itself in my life as identity systems, interactive systems, social systems, you know. Everything that we exist in in the world is some form of a system. And one of the really interesting things about it is, particularly in the era of, you know, connected internet devices and information technology, is how these systems are so much more present in our life. So, for instance, Facebook is a system. It's a platform for people to create content together, and what emerges out of that is something that's greater than the sum of its parts, right? So, you, so Facebook has become a news feed. Facebook has become a place to find uh, organ donors. Facebook has become a place to find... Um, uh, has, has become a place to uh, organize political... Uh, action and things right. like that. That was never intended in Mark Zuckerberg's original vision for it, but it's what emerged out of it because of the way the platform was designed. And in that is some form of mass collaboration. It's not just how do you and I work together through a computer screen. That's computer-mediated collaboration. That's something that's been around since the early 60s with Douglas Engelbart and his invention of the mouse and, and screen and essentially... Um, uh, 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 being able to his, he did an early version of Google Docs where you could co-edit documents together okay. what I'm really curious about is how do you take thousands of people and get them to do something together like on a Facebook platform or on a Wikipedia platform and things like that to achieve something that 
a small group of them couldn't achieve or a single person couldn't achieve. It, it, was, it was nothing more than an intellectual curiosity. And so I did a ton, a ton of research into it. But what's really interesting is with the, with the advancements of technology, technology is connecting us better. Uh, so it's because it's more pervasive in aspects of our life. The processing speeds are much faster on devices and, and through the pipes of the Internet. And then the, the Internet itself has become a production platform, not just a, a swapping of information bits platform. And so you can actually go on the platform and make things. You can create things in a way that you could only do on desktop programs before. And so what's happening is, is that companies are actually starting to migrate their value production outside of the company. Right. Rather than the company controlling production of all those uh, assets that they then sell, they say, you know what, we're just going to create the infrastructure that allows our consumer communities to use that infrastructure to create whatever they want. Right. Um, so uh, Instagram, let's say, is a, is a good example of that. Instagram doesn't create the photography. They just create the central location for people who love photography to come together, the tools to, to make and edit that photography, and the means to easily share it. Right. And then all of a sudden, Instagram is like this cultural force that's changing fashion, it's changing fitness, it's changing food, it's changing all these different industries. And that's... But it was never intentional. They just designed this platform. And so as you think about design and design having social impact, the question becomes, well, how do you design a platform for mass collaboration that creates this positive effect that maybe does something a little more than just right. swapping photos? So we've applied that in sort of loose bits, more of like on a theoretical level to things here and there in some of our work. But the gel, so I was having this exact conversation with the founder of the gel conference, and he said, I would love for you to talk about that. And I said, well, rather than talk about it, because it can get kind of academic and yeah. such, I said, let's just, let's make it experiential. Let's actually give people an opportunity to massively collaborate so our director of experience design, Brett Remfer, who's fantastic, and I and uh, 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 Flora, um, who's a designer on our team, started working on a platform, a game, where essentially everyone in the audience at the jail conference would play a game together. And the idea was that they would whip out their phones, and on their phones, if you go to a certain URL, a game controller would pop up, a very simple game controller. So we could turn everybody's phone into a game controller. And their job was to take this um, improv actor that we hired and have him walk from where he was standing to, uh, in Times Square to the TKTS stairs at Times Square. Right. And he had, a, he had a camera strapped to his chest, and that was giving a live feed back to the, uh, back to the audience who then would make a decision on should he go left or should he go right. And all these people would input which way they thought he should walk. Now, in theory, that would say, traditional linear thinking would say, oh, well, that's going to lead to chaos. Because everyone is inputting a different opinion. There's no coordination. They, nobody knows what they're doing. But we said, no, it'll actually lead to emergent coordination. Right. Because what you're doing is you're creating a feedback loop where all the inputs that people have are averaged, sent to our improv comedian, and that at, he takes the step 
where that average tells him to go. So if the average input is right, he'll step right. If it's left, he'll step left. And that feedback of his movement is then played back through the camera and then people adjust the, what they're tapping on their controllers. And the emerge it's going to be a little chaotic at first, but what ended up happening was the entire room, without anyone dictating what they should do or controlling them or coordinating them, ultimately congealed into one organism thinking collectively with each other and we're able to efficiently and quickly get our actor to the TKTS stairs and win the game. That's so cool. And it was really cool and it was fun. And That must know, have been a nerve-wracking talk to do. I, I was thinking to myself when I was watching, I was like, that must have been so nerve-wracking because like, if it didn't work, that would have been like really awkward. <laughs> you know what I yes. mean? Yes. No, it was, it was, it, it, it you actually, seemed a little nervous. On, on I was really thing. nervous because yeah. the problem was it was a rainy day, so that already hurt. Um, the connection speed and the connection quality. And we were in the Times building in, a, in their bunker of a theater surrounded by concrete walls oh, with goodness. bad Wi-Fi. Yeah. So what was happening was the first time we were playing it, the Wi-Fi kept going in and out. And we actually had two other levels to the game, which we had to cut short because the Wi-Fi wasn't strong enough. But they, they, they achieved the first level right. in it. But it was... It was absolutely nerve-wracking. I was so nervous if I was going to fail on stage. <laughs> but I was just going to be like, uh, what do we do? It would not have been featured on wearecollins.com for sure. Yeah, no, that, that would not have been featured. But, you know, it was fun. The audience had a great time. We got a lot of great uh, feedback afterwards and people wanting to talk about the technology and how we did it and stuff. But it's, you know, it's part of what we like to do. We like to experiment with things like that, even you know, when it's not a client pain thing and you're out experimenting with that stuff and you prove the theory, right. that can then feed back in as a proof of concept to some work that we're doing, which we're already doing right now. That's awesome. Oh, it's going to be so cool that I'll, I'll have this like documented. So like when it's the next, you know, when it's like changing the world and the whole world runs on this kind of technology. <laughs> well, it's, it's not quite that type of thing, but yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it would be cool if it was that. But no, it was it was truly just an experiment, a social experiment facilitated by um, uh, connective technologies. That's so cool. Look, I, I could talk to you for like three hours, honestly, but uh, I know that you have a busy day ahead of you and a lot of work to do, but uh, I really appreciate you being here and this has been, uh, this has been so cool. And this is going to be the new format, I think, kind of just having some reference points and, uh, and going based off that. Because I try and make it like I'm some intellectual dude like yourself and <laughs> I'm not. I'm really all over the place, but... Uh, like I, I remember like last week, like I was talking to Debbie and, and she would say what she said. And then I realized watching the interview backwards that my question would have no, my next question would have nothing to do with what she said. So mm -hmm. I think today I actually listened. So it was, so it was good. But, uh, <laughs> That's good. Yeah. I'm glad, I could, I'm glad I could be a part of the new format.